Welcome to the Dearly Discarded Podcast, where we tell the true stories of the vaccine injured that many don't want to hear. These are real people sharing real experiences, uncensored and unsanitized. Listen and learn with us as we tell the stories that have yet to be heard by those who've been discarded. No preaching, no propaganda, and no judgments, just the truth. Hello and welcome to the Dearly Discarded Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Jared St. Clair. It's good to be with you again on another episode of the podcast. I am really excited to bring my next guest to you. Had a nice conversation with him just a couple of days ago and uh, learned a lot, actually. He's a very, very well-informed individual, and I think his story is very compelling. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Matthew Matlock is here with me, and I think you actually go by Matt. Is that accurate? Yeah, Matt's great. Thanks, Jared. Matt, it's good to have you on the Dearly Discarded podcast. Welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, Matt. So you were involved in a recent FDA hearing uh, having to do with the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, The first thing I'd like you to uh, answer for me is what was that hearing about? And then the second would be how did you get involved? Yeah, so um, Bree Dressen is a pretty um, public figure in our community and in our movement for the vaccine injured. And so I'm connected with her on a couple different groups. And she made out a call for help uh, on one of our groups for people to come in and make a public statement. I believe the FDA was ruling on um, doing some research uh, and collecting further evidence uh, on rolling out another booster. Uh, and so we took that opportunity to come in. There were 20 of us that spoke and uh, had three minutes apiece. And, you know, my mindset going into that was, I don't think any of them listened to begin with, but I thought if, if there was going to be somebody that was interested in hearing a message, it would be more solution oriented. I work at a corporation and um, when people come to me, I, I try and say, you know, if you're coming with a problem, come with a solution as well. Um, something that we can drive together. And so that's kind of how I teed up my testimony is just enough to humanize my issue and, and say, hey, I'm a person, this is what I've gone through. But then I spent the back half of that basically um, teeing up an approach, what I think would make sense, which is, you know, we need something that, um, you know, that is research uh, driven uh, and that can, you know, um, facilitate a diagnosis, number one. Um, you know, number two, we need we need acknowledgement. Um, we need treatment. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, um, there has been no compensation, you know, from a CIC per- perspective nothing has been paid out to the thousands and thousands of people um, that have put together claims. And so that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to use my voice for others. You know, I'm in a much better situation. Uh, I've got good insurance. Um, I'm obviously physically a little bit better able-bodied than some out there. And so I just wanted to use my voice as a megaphone for others that are out there. Excellent. And I appreciate you doing that. I want to go ahead and play that right now for everybody listening, because I was really, uh, I love what you had to say. I think you you put together an incredibly powerful three minutes. So let's go ahead and listen to that really quickly, and then we'll go on with the interview. Thank you. The next speaker is Mr. Matlock. Hello, my name is Matthew Matlock. I have no financial conflicts, and these are my own words. I'm 38 years old, a combat veteran and father of two young girls. And going into the last summer, I was in the prime of my life. I was a top performer at a large technology firm in the Bay Area, 
and at the peak of health and fitness, having just completed a half Ironman. All of that changed after my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. I spent the first two and a half months either in the ER, at doctor's appointments, or in bed. I was ignored, gaslighted, and told there was no way the vaccine caused my issues. Thankfully, I'm stubborn and kept searching for answers until I found physicians who would listen and were willing to admit that anxiety was, in fact, not the cause of my heart inflammation, mast cell issues, radically varying blood pressures, tachycardia, gray skin tone, purple hands and feet, neuropathy, and Epstein-Barr reactivation. I'm not going to compromise the rest of my time on this call sharing with you what an incredibly frustrating experience this has been and how mainstream medicine has completely failed us. I choose to spend the remainder of my three minutes pleading with you to consider the following. Number one, research, research and diagnostics. The same old blood work and scans aren't cutting it. We need to think outside the box and fast. Why were we affected when others weren't? What markers can we identify that will facilitate a diagnosis? These are some of the questions we need answers to. We did our part. You assured us this was safe. We are suffering, and it's time the government stepped up and put money and resources towards this effort. Number two, treatment. The leading three options that have shown the most promise are Bruce Patterson's cytokine and inflammation treatment, Rezia Pretorius's triple threat of anticoagulant, antiplatelet, and ASA, and Dr. Yeager's help apparhesis. Please connect with these groups to learn more about their work. Come up with a plan to create a coalition to connect groups like these and mainstream institutions like the Mayo Clinic. Number three, compensation. To date, CICP has compensated zero claims. People are losing their jobs, their insurance, their house, and are in debt hundreds of thousands of dollars. Are you going to sit here and tell me that they were simply dealt a bum hand and that they and their families will now suffer for generations as a result with zero assistance or recognition? Which brings me to my final point, acknowledgement. Stop making decisions to shield information from the public for fear of vaccine hesitancy. Manipulated data and censored information is not informed consent. It's deception. Shielding COVID and vaccine data from the public is borderline criminal behavior. Start by educating physicians on the actual data and what to look for so they can effectively treat their patients. I realize this is a complex issue to tackle with an endless amount of entry points, but please do not let this be a reason for an action. When your house is burning, you don't start worrying about how other homeowners are going to feel about seeing another house on fire and then pontificate on the best PR strategy to combat misinformation around home fires. You roll up your sleeves and you pick up a goddamn hose. Please act fast. Millions of lives are counting on you. Thank you. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started with uh, a little bit about you prior to uh, your injury. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm 38 years old. I live in the Silicon Valley. I'm married to a beautiful, spicy Italian wife, Jennifer. We have uh, two young girls, uh, Alexander, who's about to turn four in July, and Gianna, who's going to turn two uh, in June, and then also father to a fur child named Willis Black Lab. Okay. Um, so yeah, I uh, pretty healthy individual. Uh, I actually spent 12 years in the military, uh, special operations of the Air Force. I was a combat controller and for the uninitiated, which is the majority of the public, and they'd say 99% have never heard of that. Um, it's a special operations ground branch inside of the United States Air Force. We get attached to other special operations teams like Green Berets, SEALs, uh, et cetera, and we're kind of the ground to air liaison for those teams, calling in airstrikes, medevacs, resupplies, things like that. And so did 12 years there, uh, three combat tours to Afghanistan, transitioned away from the military in 2015, and then finished my degree at UC Berkeley. I uh, got an undergraduate business degree there, and then just kind of made a complete life pivot 
and then went into the commercial sector working for a large technology firm um, doing something called change management, uh, which is very similar to program and project management. And so uh, as of right now, I work at a large technology firm out of Santa Clara. Uh, I've been there for a couple of years. And uh, in terms of personal interests, what I would say is that I think the older you get, the more kids you have, you realize you've only get one hobby. Um, and that takes, that takes a lot of support from your wife just for that one hobby. And so the, the thing that I kind of picked up on uh, the last few years was uh, getting back into triathlons. I'm a big fan of health and fitness. Uh, and so when um, the pandemic hit, I thought, what a better time than to get out and uh, lace the shoes up and, uh, you know, get in some good shape. And me being me, I decided I wanted to take on not just any triathlon, but the biggest, baddest triathlon out there. So signed up for an Ironman and spent uh, about a year training for that um, prior to uh, my vaccine injury. So um, I would say, you know, heading into the summer of last year, I was uh, definitely at the peak of, of health and fitness, a pr pretty healthy individual. So, Well, my friend, I will say this, uh, a triathlete is, uh, and, and triathlons, and particularly Ironman, I would call those more than just a hobby. Uh, that's a pretty... <laughs> My wife would say the same thing. <laughs> That's a pretty serious commitment uh, compared to, say, collecting baseball cards or something like that. <laughs> but uh, still, uh, it, it, it does state something I think really important, and that is the uh, the level of your health you know, prior to vaccination. So uh, before we get into the vaccine itself, what were your thoughts uh, going into that You know, during COVID, hearing everything that was going on with, vaccine, uh, with the COVID vaccines and the emergency use? What were your feelings personally about uh, the value of the vaccine at that point? Well, I think, you know, before this whole thing happened, um, I didn't have much of a medical brain, to be honest with you. So um, when it came to guidelines from the CDC, NIH, FDA, I kind of took them at their word. Um, I think historically what we've understood, you know, in terms of development of vaccines, it takes a lot of runway to get something up and off the ground and truly understand not only the mechanism of action, but then what are the ramifications of a therapy like that? Um, so, but, you know, I think everything that we were getting in terms of through the media and through the press um, was, you know, just how horrific it would be to not only get COVID, but then give it to a grandparent um, or, you know, somebody within your community. So my thought process, you know, going into the beginning of 2021 was initially I was a pretty healthy individual. Um, but, you know, you'd hear anecdotal reports about people um, that were my age that were very healthy that had struggled or even died from COVID. Um, and then the other side of it was, um, you know, I have family members who do have some, some health issues. Um, and so I wanted to do what was right by them by making the decision to protect them so that our family could continue to be together. So, um, yeah, I don't think it was necessarily a decision um, that was out of self-preservation so much as it was to protect others within uh, my community and my children. At the time, I, you know, I think we know a little bit better otherwise, but at the time, you know, I had young kids and I thought I was doing the right thing as a father. So, 
And so basically, uh, to, to summarize, you were of the opinion that what you were hearing from the pharmaceutical companies, from the CDC, the World Health Organization, and so on, was that we had a safe and effective vaccine uh, and that it made that they, your best bet was to get it as opposed to not get it, better safe than sorry, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think um, these are institutions that we've trusted for generations. And, you know, I'm somebody that's not in the medical community. Uh, previous to this, I hadn't done any kind of research. And so um, who am I to, to question somebody that is telling me that there is data to suggest that we need to go out and get vaccinated to protect ourselves, our loved ones and our communities? Right. Okay, so then when you became eligible uh, to get the vaccine, uh, which vaccine did you end up uh, choosing to get? So I decided to go with the Pfizer vaccine. At the time, there were just some anecdotal reports about the J&J with some of the blood clot issues. Um, So definitely wanted to steer away from that. And then I think more anecdotally, I think some of the friends that um, we had spoke with that got Moderna, seem to have a harder time and and that's relative i think harder time is in they just they had a few days where they didn't feel really well versus the people that i had engaged with and spoke with that got the pfizer vaccine by and large didn't seem to have any issues so that was kind of the basis for me deciding to go forward with um, pfizer specifically in terms of the brand okay and did you end up getting two uh, both shots i did so first one was in may of 2021 uh, and then the second one uh, was in June. Okay. And so uh, is it safe to assume that you didn't have much issue, if any, with the first shot? Or did you have a little bit of stuff going on? Yeah, it's it's definitely safe to assume. Um, you know, especially now that I look back, I was kind of combing through and thinking, you know, whether, was there anything after that first one that popped up? But um, absolutely nothing. Uh, it You know, outside of having a, sho- a, a sore shoulder, um, I didn't feel any effects after that first one. Okay. And then a few weeks later, you get the second one. And did you notice uh, ill effects right away or did it take some time? Took some time. I think I did notice three things that stood out. Um, and I do realize that um, the journey for everyone's been a little bit different. I think there are some people that you talk to that they, they ended up in the hospital hours after um, and there are some people that had a delayed onset. I'm more kind of in the latter there. But I do recognize that there were three pretty significant symptoms that stood out, and I just didn't attribute them to the vaccine initially. That was insomnia. I had some muscle twitching going on in my left tricep and um, pretty severe anxiety. Uh, and I'm not really an anxious person. Um, so, you know, those are the three things that really stood out as being different. Um, But again, you know, I'm a busy guy. I work for a a technology company. I'm training six days a week, sometimes three or four hours a day. I just figured I was burning the candle at both ends. And that was what was attributing to most of that. Um, The sleep was definitely odd. I I mean, I've had sleep stuff before, but nothing could compare to that and it was you know it was to the point where i would make myself go to bed at 7 30 and then i'd get up at you know 6 a.m and i you know i check my i have a garmin wristwatch and i check it and my restful sleep was like in the 30s or whatever it was out of 100 not good 
wasn't getting any kind of rim, no deep sleep. And I felt like it, I felt really bad. And again, I just kind of attributed it to training too hard and me being me, I just am stubborn. And I just kept, kept training and kept doing what I was doing. And I didn't really recognize what was going on, but something that really stood out that I recognize now is I had this incredible feeling of like impending doom. And I've heard others say the exact same thing. Um, And I couldn't really put my finger on why or what it exactly was, but I just had this weird like conception or idea that like I was going to, something bad was going to happen to me. Could, I didn't know why or what it was. Um, So yeah, I'd say that was kind of what was, there in the moment for about six to eight weeks, went up to Oregon, did a half Ironman. Uh, you know, I was excited about the event, but I was also worried because I just I hadn't been getting sleep. And whenever you're doing any kind of endurance sports, I mean, sleep is kind of like the fourth or fifth discipline of the sport. Um, it's an incredibly important part to how your body is able to recover so that you can go turn around and do it again the next day. And I wasn't getting that, and I knew that, and I was really worried about what that was going to look like on race day. Um, everything that I did leading up to that race in that week was just designed around trying to give my body the most rest that I could. But it was distressing. I had never had that many issues um, with sleep. And so did the half Ironman and um, finished – and absolutely felt like a, a truck had hit me. And not just because I had done an Ironman, but it just, I didn't recover. It just, it, it took about a week and a half to feel normal. And then I started to try and pick back working out again. And um, yeah, just, I mean, my numbers weren't there. My performance wasn't there. I could tell something was up. The muscle twitching had gotten a lot, uh, a lot worse and my sleep had gotten a lot worse. And so... Yeah, that was when things really started to ramp um, for me. So I'd say, um, you know, those three things up until about week seven or eight. Uh, and then, um, you know, the wheels completely came off at that point. So so about eight weeks after is when things really started going south for you then? Yep. So I was, um, I was cooking dinner and uh, I had just gotten done with a, pretty light two hour bike ride. It was actually supposed to be a recovery ride. And it was, um, you know, when, when you're doing Ironman training, you're on the bike, uh, there's a lot of metrics involved and a lot of data. And one of the big metrics that cyclists follow is, is power. And that's through Watts. And, um, typically the better cyclists push bigger Watts for longer periods of time. The longer you do it, the more watts you push. And so this was the prescribed amount of watts for me. I was working with a coach at the time was not something that I should have been struggling with for two hours. It should have been a very easy pace and cadence. And I got off the bike and I just felt floored, didn't feel right, got showered up and then went into the kitchen to make some dinner. And um, I was in the spice cupboard and I just all of a sudden got really disoriented. I got very confused. Um, very lightheaded. And then I started to not be able to catch my breath, had chest pain, pain in my jaw. And I kind of stumbled in the living room and I grabbed the couch and I said, honey, I think I'm having a heart attack. And so she called uh, the paramedics and I sat down. They came in. 
Um, they did an EKG right there. They said, hey, it doesn't look like he's having an event. Um, you know, we can take him for a ride or you guys can uh, go to the hospital on your own. So um, we have insurance, but, you know, I wasn't feeling like I wanted to, to take an ambulance ride at that, at that time. So we got in the car and we went to the hospital. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure you've probably heard from countless other guests, they did a bunch of workup, they did a bunch of tests, um, and they couldn't find anything. And they told me it was from dehydration, which, you know, you talk to any endurance athlete that's been doing it long enough. We know our body so well that I know what dehydration looks like. And, you know, my nutrition plan was down to the ounce and gram of sugar per minute. Like I, I knew exactly what was in my body and, and if I missed or uh, was depleted and it absolutely was not the case. Um, but, you know, again, having a lack of experience uh, in the medical and, you know, community and, and anything like that, you just kind of take the doctors for their word. So, um, so that was the first occasion. And then I'd say for about two weeks, it was about every other day I'd end up at the ER with something very similar, felt like a heart attack. And you get to the ER and they run all the same tests. And you say, you know, after the third or fourth visit, I'm like, like, I don't know what to do here. I'm having all the symptoms of heart attack, but I'm not, you're telling me I'm not having a heart attack, at least based on the equipment and the tests that you're doing. Like, like, what do I do when I have chest pain and I get dizzy? And they said, well, just continue to come in. And so it was like that for, you know, two, two and a half weeks. And then I went to my primary care doctor. She, you know, talked to me and, uh, she really keyed in on the no sleep part and then that dovetailed into anxiety. And so she put me on a prescription for trazodone, which I, you know, it didn't do anything. I was in a really bad spot. That was at that point where I started to, um, I just like my brain fog was horrible. Um, I had I didn't know what it was at the time, but I had pots. Anytime I go to stand up, I, I had to sit right back down. Um, and this was all being attributed. Explain that really quick for people that aren't familiar with POTS. So you'd get up and have to sit back down because what was happening? Yeah. So, uh, you know, essentially, um, dysautonomia is what it's called. And, um, there's a misfiring that's going on. And so your body changes blood pressure or heart rate, um, as soon as you stand up. Uh, and so essentially I would go from a seated or a laying position. I would have a resting heart rate at the time, it was in the low 50s, and then I would stand up and my heart rate would go up to about 130 or 140. Um, I was also getting hypotensive, and so my blood pressure was dropping down to around 90 over 50, which for me, I've been a lifetime 120 over 70 person. So um, Right where it should be. Yep, yeah. exactly. Um, so really distressing to say the least. And then added on with all of these other symptoms that I had was having that yeah, it was, right, you know, right mimicking be. some sort of like either a TIA or a heart attack, something of that nature, or even a PE. Um, so, you know, my primary care sent me down the road of, of anxiety <clears throat> after, you know, another week or two, I just, I continue to try and communicate through the um, online platform that they have, the messaging system. I didn't sense any kind of urgency from her and I felt urgent. I felt like I was dying. So I ended up going to another primary care physician and um, 
same thing. Went into this primary care physician. She told me it was anxiety. And, you know, you start getting multiple data points from MDs and they tell you it's anxiety and you don't have any tests or labs that can suggest otherwise. You you tend to listen. I've never been an anxious person, but, you know, if you're telling me it's anxiety, I'm willing to try whatever because I don't want to feel like this anymore. And so her remedy to the situation, unfortunately, was to put me on a benzo, put me on one milligram of Klonopin and told me to take uh, take one milligram every time that I felt any kind of symptoms of chest pain, anxiety, you know, dizziness. So after four weeks, um, you know, I was taking two to three milligrams of Klonopin per day. And, you know, I thought, well, what would happen if I like just don't take this for a couple of days? Let's see where I'm at because I, I still wasn't feeling good. And I didn't like the way that that stuff had made me feel anyways. So I went two and a half or three days uh, without taking it. And I had what they call rebound withdrawals. Um, so in the middle of the night, um, I started having these incredibly horrible pains, sweating, um, and my insomnia was to the point where, you know, I didn't sleep at all. Um, it, it definitely felt like some kind of withdrawal from, you know, a medication. So I messaged her and I said, I think this is what's happening. She told me that was impossible that, um, you know, people don't respond to that medication that way. I hadn't been on it long enough. So this is, a, you know, it, I know it's a very long winded way of answering your question, but, um, it was about four to six weeks of just bouncing around between the ER, being in bed, going to different physicians to figure out what the heck was going on with no answers. And um, so then in the middle of all this, you know, I go to a psychiatrist and I said, hey, I know I'm not working with you because I wasn't at the time working with any kind of psychiatrist. I said, I just need somebody to pressure test this with. This is what's going on. This is what I'm taking. This is what my physician's telling me. And the physician or the psychiatrist said, well, that's a lot to be taking, first of all. And second of all, those are very addictive drugs. And, and what you are experiencing is a rebound withdrawal. And we need to taper you off. And so that doctor helped taper me out off of that benzo uh, and th- went through three weeks of that. And then, you know, anybody that's tried to come off that drug, 14 solid days of of withdrawals, which was horrific to go through in the middle of all this. And so in parallel with that, I found an infectious disease doctor that another family member had been working with as they have an autoimmune disease. And I went to this person who um, has actually been, oddly enough, really close with the CDC and working with a lot of um, COVID research. And uh, this infectious disease doctor did a complete head-to-toe workup. I mean, the most intricate of labs that you can order outside of Mayo. And, you know, I think it was early October timeframe. And this person finally said, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, you're either suffering from an undiagnosed COVID infection or you're having a reaction to the COVID vaccine. And it was like mind-blowing to me. Because between about mid-August, when the wheels completely came off, to October, it was just, we had had no idea what was going on or or why I was experiencing this wide range of symptoms. Um, And so, yeah, that was, um, 
quite the journey to get to the point of, of having something that resembled uh, an answer. So did you immediately accept that as uh, an accurate diagnosis or did you think he was a little crazy on that or where were you at at that point? Because it's interesting the mindset that people come in with. I've, I've talked to different people now, you know, with this podcast, I've been speaking to a lot of people uh, who've had these injuries. And one of the things that I found very interesting is I've, I've had several guests that weren't very excited about the vaccine, but they got it because, you know, their job was pressuring them or, you know, whatever, uh, kind of a mandatory type of a scenario. And then other people like yourself that were just like, hey, I'm going for it. I think it's the right thing to do. And the mindset going in, if you think, hey, this is safe, it's an effective thing. And then in your case, where you had that longer kind of lag before things really started going off the rails for you, it would be very difficult to immediately go back and point to the vaccine and say, hey, it must have been this, right? Uh, especially because, like you said, you know, you had the, the the range of symptoms was so interesting and the inability for them to diagnose what the heck was going on doesn't give you any information at all other than just a frustrating visit to the ER. So I'm always just kind of curious where where your mindset was on that because other people I've spoken to who have a much more obvious link to the vaccine have had a devil of a time getting any doctor to admit that that might be the case. Yeah, it was, um, I wouldn't say it was a tough pill to swallow, but I was um, a little incredulous at the point, at that point, you know, I thought, okay, well, there's potential, but um I, I don't think I was necessarily sold on it. Um, ended up uh, speaking with another physician, ran the idea by them. And I mean, I think everybody knows at this point, you know, back at, you know, even now when you go into a physician's office and you start talking about the vaccine in that fashion, um, it's not overly well received. And that was my experience. And so um, I, you know, I had just started working with a new cardiologist. I fired, I mean, the amount of doctors that I fired in six months, it's ridiculous. But um, I moved from Sutter to Stanford, found a pretty fantastic cardiologist there at Stanford who was of the mindset that I overtrained myself and I just, you know, needed a couple of weeks off. And this infectious disease doctor, I pleaded with them. I said, can you please get on the phone with my cardiologist and to explain to him your thought process and rationale on why you think it's attributable to the vaccine. Because I had a negative nucleocapsid test, and then later I ended up doing a T-cell detect, which was negative as well. So no indication of any kind of natural infection at that point. So um, he got on the phone, and I had worn two different halter monitors at that time, and you know, he ended up extrapolating a couple of data points out of there that suggested at some point I had a mild version of myocarditis based on what the halter monitor was suggesting. This is your cardiologist that figured that out? Took my infectious disease doctor syncing up with my cardiologist at Stanford to get to that point. And, and what I'll say is that at least my cardiologist was open to having that conversation and that dialogue and then open to the idea. Ah, gotcha. And so what ended up happening, they had a great discussion and my cardiologist met with me the following week and he said, you know what? I'm aligned with your infectious disease doctor. He's like, I think that is exactly what's happening. Um, he's like, I don't have any answers for you. Unfortunately, it's just uh, going to be a mechanism of time and rest. 
And he's like, generally what we're seeing from people who um, are vaccine injured, it's taking about nine to 12 months, which, you know, I don't think that that's true anymore. There's people that are all over the map in terms of uh, what their path to recovery looks like. So doesn't seem to be an average. Yeah. Okay. So then at that point, you had now a diagnosis of myocarditis. Um, and that would then explain, obviously, some of these, you know, chest pains and heart attack like feelings and things that you were experiencing. Um, what other uh, symptoms were you dealing with at that point? Mostly that and the and the pots, or were there other things going? Um, on? Yeah, it's it definitely was a revolving door of symptoms, and I think as time went on, the list got longer and longer. So um, incredible GI distress, um, you know, pots, um, hypotension, um, rosacea, mast cell activation syndrome. Um, you know, very mild neuropathy, thankfully, because I know people who have some are in pretty bad shape from neuropathy specifically. Um, my hands and feet were purple. Um, I was bruising very easy, um, very lightheaded all of the time. Um, and uh, just all of these brand new food allergies and sensitivities to my environment that I had never had before. Um, real, a lot of trouble sleeping. I mean, um, it took a long time to try and get that closer to baseline. It's not still baseline, but it's better. Um, so yeah, that that's to name a few. Were you able to work through all of this? No. So I ended up going on disability after my second stint in the ER, which the second one, I was absolutely positive. It was a heart attack. I actually took an ambulance ride. Um, and so, yeah, at that point I went on disability and, um, I didn't go back to work until, um, just a couple of months ago, I went back to work in March of this year. So, so then what, uh, first off, I guess, let me ask you this. Once you bought into the idea that your cardiologist and your infectious disease doctor were, uh, presenting that it maybe was a vaccine injury. Um, what were your thoughts on that? And how long before you started uh, realizing that there were more, there was more of this going on than you realized? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. And it felt very isolating, because I didn't know anybody else that had had this. Um, long COVID was kind of out there in the ether. I had heard about it. I was unsure about it. By that point, I had done enough research to know that it presented very similar. Uh, and so I ended up reading an article um, and it had uh, interviewed a couple of individuals um, that were just traditional long COVID and what their experience was like. And one of the guys is just his story um, was very similar to mine in terms of not necessarily him having long COVID versus vaccine, but he was just, you know, my age, he had two kids, he was an athlete, he was a runner, and had just been absolutely floored from an infection of COVID and just couldn't get better. And so I ended up reaching out to him on Facebook and, um, yeah, and asked him, I said, hey, can, can I set up a call with you? Just, I want to learn more about your journey and the re any resources that you might have. And it, I'm, it's one of the best moves that I did because, I mean, he got me plugged into all of the Facebook groups that are out there, the people to follow on Twitter, and a couple of just like things to take a look at. Uh, I think the first video he sent me was Leo Gallon's treatment video, which was instrumental in how I built 
um, my supplement stack. Uh, and so that was kind of my first step into, uh, into this community. And so the first, uh, group that I joined was actually a fasting one, uh, that was all around, um, autophagy, uh, and using fasting as a mechanism for healing and treatment. Uh, and so, yeah, that was as, as soon as, as soon as the dots started to connect and, um, I, re I relinquished on the idea that it could be anything else but this. I kind of went into into what I call violent proactive mode, which is just what do I need to do to get better? Like, who do I need to involve? And, in, you know, um, what kind of treatment is out there? And I spent the better part of most of my days just doing a lot of research um, reaching out to as many individuals as I could. If I'd read an article and there was a doctor that had a hint of interest in long COVID, um, I would reach out to that individual, whether it was through Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera. Um, because I, I just, I had had enough, enough experience at that point to know that mainstream medicine wasn't moving on this and, um, that I, I needed to seek alternative type of treatment. Okay. So then once you started doing that research and looking into the alternative options, uh, what did you find that was helpful for you? So initially, um, you know, I think the fasting one was an interesting one because with that, you know, there was a lot of just like it was interwoven with like the whole dietary approach with low histamine, intermittent fasting, potentially um, tying in longer fast, which my system didn't respond very well to. Um, but then when you're a part of these groups, people start to talk about all of their symptoms and other kind of available treatments and research. And so then you get plugged in with other groups. And so, you know, the reading that I was doing at that point, I had found out about Incel DX and Bruce Patterson and his work. So did a little bit of research there, um, reached out to Dr. Yo on Twitter, um, and, and he kind of gave me a rough idea of what they were doing from a treatment perspective. Uh, and so I signed up for their cytokine panel and got my blood drawn, sent that in, um, and then ended up jumping on their protocol towards the end of, uh, of last year. So that was, um, that was the first official kind of medical treatment that I sought out. Um, and then there were other things along the way that I was doing, you know, obviously I was doing a lot of supplementation, um, with anti-inflammatories and things like that. Um, I was also doing, you know, very strict diet with low histamine. Um, you know, I, I, I was doing kind of what I call the Holy Trinity of, uh, you know, your recovery process, which is re trying to rest 10 to 12 hours a day. If you can, um, I was aiming for about 140 ounces of water a day. Uh, and then staying very strict on a low histamine diet and, and never missing, um, you know, my supplements or whatever medications I was taking at that time. Um, so I was taking a very proactive approach to everything I can do on my side of the fence to get myself closer to something that resembled recovery. And then I was doing a lot of research to figure out what treatments were out there and available. And, you know, the, the, the ones that I was aware of at that time were Bruce Patterson's uh, Resio Pretorius, um, and then Dr. Yeager, which is the help apprehesis. Uh, and so, um, Dr. Patterson's treatment seemed like it was the least invasive. Um, Dr. Yeager with help apprehesis, I had heard mixed things. 
Um, and, you know, I think any time that you're doing that kind of treatment um, where you're filtering your blood, you know, things can get complicated, things can happen. And then with Rezia's um, approach, I know it was a very small subset of people they were working with. But, um, you know, I think the approach, the, the triple threat, as they call it, of anticoagulant, antiplatelet and ASA seemed pretty radical to me at the time as well. So I kind of went with what I thought at the time was a little bit more of a safer approach, which was, you know, using Bruce Patterson's approach with the CCR5 antagonist and statin. So. Okay. And so about when was that that you started? Started that in December. And then actually I forgot one piece of that recovery journey before I got plugged in or while I was waiting to meet with Bruce Patterson, there was a nurse practitioner um, out of Utah that I was working with that, um, worked for a COVID clinic, um, but was helping people kind of on the side. So I won't put her name out there because I don't want anybody to get in trouble, but um, ended up doing an ivermectin protocol. And so I was doing high dose vitamin C and ivermectin. I was doing um, 0.12 milligrams um, per kilogram for five days on and then seven days off. So um, did high dose vitamin C, fish oil, and ivermectin for about four weeks. Saw a little bit of improvement, but now I, now that I look back, I do think that the ivermectin was pretty instrumental in helping clear the spike protein, or at least facilitating the initial process of clearing the spike out. And then getting, I think that helped me get to the point where um, that helped, you know, Patterson's protocol actually be effective, which I know there's a lot of people out there that have done uh, Patterson's protocol that haven't seen the benefits or the results. And um, I tend to think that some of the work that I did up front helped facilitate it. So interesting. So then where would you say you are now as far as symptoms versus back in November? Uh, I'm a different person. I'm a different person. I mean, I, um, <laughs> the fatigue is, uh, it still comes and goes a little bit, but the POTS is gone. The neuropathy is gone. Um, I have a little bit of weird alopecia where, um, for whatever reason, the hair has fallen out of my legs on just on the outside part of my legs, which is better than my head. So, uh, but what I've been told, well, unless you look like me and then, it <laughs> then you just got to go all the way at that point. Right. <laughs> it could right. be better for That's my right. swimming too. I got all kinds of hair on my legs. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what I ended up finding out from a couple others with, um, small fiber neuropathy is that is a very common one as uh, hair falling out of the legs. So, um, but outside of that, um, you know, I've, I've got some, uh, weird bruising and, um, you know, I get some weird varicose veins that I didn't have before, but like I'm a functional human being. So I fluctuate from 85 to 95% depending on what's going on on any given day. I just went through a mini crash a couple of weeks ago, completely manageable, didn't have to take off work, um, just required a little bit more extra rest than what I needed to. Um, and it's pretty clear where my boundaries are, you know, um, like I'm sitting here with you on a Friday afternoon at uh, you know, 4.30 uh, Pacific time. And um, I think on the longer weeks, what I realized by Friday afternoon, I'm pretty fried. And usually, you know, Saturday, Sunday will be kind of more dedicated towards recovery and resting. Um, but I, what I would say is this, the huge pivotal point in this process for me, I'll preface this with saying there is no silver bullet. I think we all realize that at this point, 
there's nothing out there right now that's going to like absolutely get you to 100%, unfortunately. Hopefully we'll get there. But where I was at in my journey, I think the next step was platelet deactivation. And so we made the conscious decision to switch from aspirin to Plavix. And that was in mid-March. And it is the only thing that I have done on this journey that within hours of first dose, it was like a light switch going on. Um, the fatigue was gone. My, um, my brain fog was gone. Um, energy. So it was, it was incredibly transformative. Um, it, it is the one thing. And there was a lot of things that I've done that I feel like have helped. But I'd say, you know, far and away, Plavix was, 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 was a game changer for me. Interesting. And all of that is really helpful. Of course, everybody that's been through this uh, has a different story as far as their symptoms. While there are, in most cases, a lot of similarities, of course, that small fiber neuropathy is a really common thing, the dysautonomia and so on. POTS, I don't think I've talked to a single injured person that hasn't experienced that. But uh, of course, the ultimate wild card in health, and I've, you know, being someone who's done health and nutrition counseling most of my life, the thing I know more than anything else is the individual is the most critical part and the biggest wild card in all this. And one of the reasons I quiz, you know, a little harder on, you know, what you've done and what works is because I'm hoping that some of this information that you're sharing right now will find, uh, you know, another one of your fellow injured uh, and, and uh, be a helpful bit of information for them. So I very much appreciate you going into detail on that. I think it's very valuable. Um, so what is your thought and, and, you know, where are you at as far as your, uh, you know, mental, emotional state in terms of a full recovery? What do you believe will happen? Yeah. Um, sometimes I worry I'm never going to get to a hundred percent. I think we all worry that. Um, but you know, I think if I were to position this against where I was late last year, I can live with this. So emotionally, spiritually, um, I feel like I've come out on the other side with a really unique perspective that I didn't have before, an appreciation for things that I didn't have necessarily before, or at least I, maybe I took for granted. And um, I want to use this as kind of like a, you know, it sounds uh, cheesy, but some sort of a spiritual awakening. I want this to be almost like a, a rebirth. Um because I think I have uh, a lens that not many people um, get to experience. So, yeah, absolutely, and and I admire you for seeing it that way. That's a, a really about as positive an outcome as I think could come of something like this. Uh, let me ask you one other question that I think is pretty important, and um, something I'm asking everybody that I interview. Why is it that you'd want to take your time on a Friday afternoon telling this story on this podcast? What what do you hope to achieve by getting this message out? I want to spread hope. It's just uh, it's a pretty tough journey, and uh, you know, I've got kids and I got a wife, but I went through some really dark periods, and uh, you know, I mean, just I mean, I'll just say it like that. Suicide is a, is a pretty common thing in, in this community, unfortunately. Um, we're not widely recognized and there's not a lot of treatment available. And so it feels like you are spiraling out of control and there's nothing there to catch you. Uh, and so I just want to spread hope that um, recovery 
is there and that you will, you will get there. Um, science will catch up, but um, you've got to, you've got to stay, as I said earlier, violently proactive. Don't spend energy. Don't waste energy on people that don't believe you. Um, you know, align your care team uh, with people that are empathetic. The way I look at a relationship with a doctor is they don't need to have all the answers. They just need to be willing to go on the journey with you. Use them for their, you know, their mental horsepower. I almost look at them like a vehicle. We're trying to get to a destination. I might know where I'm headed, but we're going on this journey together. And that's the way that I look at a relationship with the doctor. And if they're not in it for that, um, if they're spouting things that are, you know, um, data points from 2020, then, you know, just don't waste your time. Um, and then the other thing I would say, do your research, but like limit the amount of time. Like it, it became unhealthy for me. It became an addiction um, in terms of, uh, you know, doing all that research and reaching out because what ends up happening is you stay so connected in these groups and on Twitter because you're looking for the silver bullet. You're waiting for somebody to share that one piece of information that's going to be that transformative like piece that you've been missing in your journey that's going to cure, cure you. And that, like I said, it doesn't exist. So be proactive, be your own advocate, do your research, but like, don't let it become unhealthy and like, you know, dedicate, you know, one to two hours a day where you're doing a little bit of research and then leave it and then do other things. Spend time with your kids. If you can get out and walk, you know, watch a show, read a book, rest, do something else because um, it's really easy to spin out. Um, and, you know, we, we tend to, the chronically ill tend to feed off each other a little bit. Um, and so you read these scary stories about people in the hospital or having strokes. And then you say, gee, well, those symptoms really align with what I'm feeling. And, 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 and you just, you spin out really quickly. So um, that would be the other piece is I would say, be an advocate, do your research, but um, don't get to the point where it becomes unhealthy. I think that's awesome advice. Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, okay, so I think that we've covered, and I know we're right up against it a little deadline here too. We've covered uh, mainly what I wanted to cover. Um, and is there anything else that you'd like to add to what we've uh, discussed before we wrap this up? Uh, I just say don't give up for the people that are out there that are listening to this and they're going through it especially for our, our, you know, unfortunately, as we continue on with the boosters, there's going to be more and more people that are that are new to the community and uh, are new to, um, you know, vaccine induced long COVID syndrome. Um, don't give up. And what I would say is um, your road to recovery is shaped by how proactive you are. Um, and you've got to be willing to be proactive and continue to search for physicians and people that can get you to where you need to be. Because right now we do have some answers. We do have some research. There are teams that are working on this. You know, unfortunately there, there are people out there like Bree and, and others that were part of the trials who they were in a holding pattern for, you know, about a year before there was really anything that was out there to help them. So we're in a really good spot now where um, if you are injured, there are people that are working on this. So, you know, I think key takeaway is just don't give up, be gentle with yourself, be patient, realize it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of rest, but be proactive and, and an advocate for your care. 
Absolutely. Again, couldn't agree more. I think you're speaking some really uh, big words of wisdom right there. The proactivity is huge. And I, and I think the proactive nature of, of trying to consistently find answers uh, is also a really good way to maintain hope. Uh, if you uh, if you stop hoping, you stop searching, uh, it's very easy to go downhill real fast and, like you say, kind of spin out. Um, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up with you. I, I don't know that we can add a whole lot more value to what we've discussed. Um, I will say one thing to you listening uh, to this, uh, this episode right now. What I believe is maybe more valuable than anything else is getting these stories out there. That's why I do this podcast and dedicate my time to this because the more awareness we have uh, across the board, whether it be people who've uh, who've been injured, people who are considering their second booster, uh, people who are, are uh, considering whether or not they should give these to their children, uh, doctors uh, that uh, could potentially come into contact with this information that really didn't believe that these injuries were as big of a deal as they actually have been. These messages need to be heard. These stories need to be heard. And you can do a great service by just simply sharing them. So share this podcast uh, with anybody that you uh, believe needs to hear it, which I would dare say is everybody uh, that you know. Get it out there. Spread the word. We need to take the uh, get this stuff out of the shadows and get it out into the light because every other illness, every other chronic disease that people are dealing with in this uh, world, every autoimmune disease, uh, every neurological disorder, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, you name it, there's support all over the place for people that are dealing with this. The vaccine injured have very, very, very limited support network, and we need to build that network to help these amazing people out. So please share this podcast anywhere that you can. I appreciate it very much. Matt, Thank you for your time. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your uh, your efforts to spread this information. I greatly appreciate it. I know I don't. I'm not alone in in that appreciation. So thanks for joining me on the dearly discarded podcast. Okay, so that was. Uh, Matthew Matlock uh, on the Dearly Discarded podcast. Uh, really, really excellent uh, information there. Please, like I said, share this episode. Uh, check out the other episodes that we've done and get the word out. Thank you so much. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been the Dearly Discarded podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dearly Discarded podcast. We encourage you to help break through the silence and share this episode with your friends and family. It's time for these stories to not only be told, but to be heard. For more information, head to react19.org and dearlydiscardedpod.com. The Dearly Discarded Podcast is produced by Jared St. Clair and Michaela Hyde with support from React 19. We'll be back next week with another true story from one who lives it. Until then, join us on Team Humanity. Keep an open mind seek the truth, and share these stories. Most of all, open your mouth. Silence won't change anything. React 19 needs your support. We're a grassroots nonprofit created by the COVID vaccine injured for the COVID vaccine injured. React 19 provides physical support through scientific research and physician referrals, financial support to those most in need for uncovered medical expenses, and emotional support by growing a community that's focused on compassionate advocacy, hope, 
fellowship, and improving lives. We can only do these things with your support. Your donation is tax deductible and any amount is greatly appreciated. You can also sign up for automatic monthly donations. The vaccine injured have been marginalized, censored, and discarded, but they have not been broken. Help them rise to the challenge today. Visit react19.org for more information or simply text the word REACT to 50155 and donate via text. <laughs> 